Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I'm Brian Chen, Chief Science Officer at Foxo Technologies, here on behalf of Aging. Today, we have a very exciting paper titled Increased DNA Methylation, Cellular Senescence, and Premature Epigenetic Aging in Guinea Pigs and Humans with Tuberculosis. Um, here today, we have three of the authors here, and I'm going to have them go through uh, in order to introduce themselves. So Andrew, do you want to start? Sure. I am Andrew DiNardo. I am an assistant professor in infectious disease here at Baylor College of Medicine. Great. And then uh, Christian? Hey, I'm uh, Christian Quarfa. I'm an associate professor at the Baylor College of Medicine in the Cancer Center. And uh, my main focus is maltomics analysis. All right. And Carly? Hi. Uh, so my name is Carly Boback. I'm a lecturer and research in, researcher at Bio in biomedical data science at Dartmouth College. Um, and a lot of this work was part of my uh, PhD thesis also down at Dartmouth College. Great. Um, can, so can one of you guys give us a background about what this paper is about, kind of set the stage for us? Sure, so we previously had done work in DNA methylation in schistosomiasis in adolescence from Eswatini with schistosomiasis and then adults from Eswatini, formerly Swaziland. Um, and we previously studied the effect of DNA hypermethylation on the immune system. Uh, Carly and I had the pleasure of meeting at a conference and we found out that we had a lot of um, overlap between our research interests. And from there, we started a collaboration that led to this paper. Perfect. And Andrew, um, maybe you're in a good position to say this, but uh, cellular senescence, premature aging, uh, DNA methylation, uh, these are all kind of aging specific things. And then you study infectious diseases. So kind of, can you talk about the marriage between the two different fields? Well, there's been this hypothesis that severe or chronic infections uh, induce premature aging. And there's a little bit of data on that for CMV. There's a, a little bit more data for HIV, but there's really no data for any other infections, including tuberculosis, which is the most common cause of pneumonia. Before the pandemic, the most common cause of infectious disease mortality was due to tuberculosis. Um, we don't have data on sepsis, on pneumonia. There's a lot of infections that we, we are still lacking data despite this hypothesis and, and this assumption that infections lead to cellular senescence and, and premature cellular aging. Perfect. Great. Now that we've set the stage, um, why don't you guys take it away and show us uh, what, you've, what you learned? 
Well, our, our previous paper that I briefly mentioned uh, here in tuberculosis uh, identified that TB patients uh, have DNA hypermethylation in the PI3K pathway, the TNF, the IL2 stat5, the interferon gamma signaling pathways, and that these DNA hypermethylation marks were associated with decreased immune responsiveness, both um, both to BCG stimulation, both to TB stimulation, uh, also to interferon gamma stimulation, also uh, IL-12 and mitogen. So it was an across the board, both antigen specific and antigen nonspecific uh, immune hyporesponsiveness. Um, so in, in this study, we wanted to know if these individuals, one of the first things we wanted to ask is, were these healthy individuals that had detrimental epigenetic marks, these DNA hypermethylation marks, and that predisposed them to develop TB, which is certainly possible, or if TB in and of itself did that. Uh, we were able to collaborate with Jeff Cerillo at Texas A&M uh, to, to ask that question using uh, a guinea pig model. Uh, and then uh, the latter part is, uh, what are the con consequences of these epigenetic changes, um, both for sepsis, for COVID, for pneumonia, and for TB? After successful therapy for any of those infections, um, there's a two to threefold increased risk of death after survival. Uh, so one of the hypotheses we had is uh, that the increased cellular senescence and the increased uh, the premature epigenetic aging, which we'll discuss, uh, might be leading uh, to some of these, these uh, secondary problems. So technically, um, it's a, nice to be part of this team because we each all bring different um, skills and aspects to the table. So Andrew is obviously a very passionate um, physician scientist in he conducts a successful research lab. He also travels around the world, seeing patients from different countries, collecting samples, you know, um, imparting knowledge and learning. And I'm very fortunate to be working with him. And then uh, Carly, obviously, you know, is a rising star and she brings a lot of, uh, actually, she brings the best of both worlds because she has a formal training both in biology and bioinformatics. So she's able to bring the best of both uh, fields. I'm uh, focused on uh, multi-omics analysis and working with Andrew was a pleasure because I kind of felt that on one hand, I was able to find from him interesting problems to work in. On the other hand, he had enough knowledge and patience with us to actually, you know, plan best uh, skills. So in this example, um, we focused on uh, DNA methylation and past work of our groups uh, focused on uh, Illumina microarrays. The other hand, this time we wanted to move into the realm of sequencing where we're able to get uh, slightly deeper and uh, more uh, detailed information. So the experiment performed um, started with the uh, guinea pigs. They were infected with um, um, tuberculosis uh, bacteria or with a saline solution. And after 45 days, um, spleen and lungs were removed. And then um, they were I said with the process called the RRBS methylation and RRBS stands for reduced representation by sulfide sequencing. Um, it's named this way to distinguish from the whole genome by sulfide sequencing. There is a significant saving in cost, which to us means that we can do more samples with it. 
And then technically, the focus of the reducer presentation is done by using uh, multiple uh, digestion enzymes. So technically, once we got this data, we process it to standard pipelines. We use Bismarck to do the mapping. We use a tool called DSS to do the differential methylation. And then once we get these results, uh, we took a step back and say, okay, what are the questions that we try to address with this particular assay? So one of the questions was, is this guinea pig model relevant to human disease? Okay. Another question was, well, are the lung and spleen both informative? Okay. And then the last one, you know, for this assay was, well, how does it link to previous work in DNA methylation uh, done in uh, human uh, blood, in particular cell types that uh, Andrew and team, you know, have already reported on? Okay. So then we tried to address these questions, you know, one by one. So first of all, the interesting observation was that hypermethylation seemed to be a prominent phenotype in both spleen and lung. And then technically, as you can see from the graph on the right, about 80% of the differentially methylated genes in the spleen and about 60% of those in the lung had hypermethylation. And this is uh, tracking with previous reports of others, Andrew, showing that hypermethylation is a major uh, epigenetic scarring phenotype in tuberculosis. And then um, um, next step, we wanted to do integration with the previous data. Okay, so one question was, are lung and spleen informa uh, informative? So uh, the answer is yes, they both indicate the uh, hypermethylation phenotype. And that also when we take uh, genes associated with differential methylated regions and put them through standard approaches of looking for pathway enrichment, we can see that um, uh, genes from both uh, uh, tissues enrich for some of the same uh, major pathways, okay? So technically we enrich for uh, cytokine signaling, calcium signaling, metabolism, pediatric kinase, and uh, tyrosine kinase pathways. And technically these are uh, been reported, uh, each of these you know, groups of pathways have been reported and extensively published in infectious diseases. So now um, the, one of the most important questions is excellent. We have an animal model. We have data from two tissues that seem to be in agreement with each other. They seem to be enriching for you know, broad terms reported, but can we actually get into a better and a deeper answer to how does it relate to prior work, okay? So um, uh, I had the pleasure of working with Andrew on a paper published in a JCI a few years ago, again, where hypermethylation and persistent hypermethylation, persistent epigenetic scarring was a major theme. And then technically in that paper, we are able to dig through some uh, nifty bioinformatics methods into gene changes in specific uh, cell types. So we looked at uh, CD40 cells, CD8, CD14 cells in human, and then we look at genes affected by methylation changes in those particular cell types. And then technically we noticed that our two um, tissues from the guinea pig overlap nicely and significantly with the genes affected by epigenetic changes in the cells. So for example, for the CD4, we have 144 overlaps in spleen and 14 lung. For the CD8, we have you know, almost a thousand in spleen and almost 300 in lung. For the CD14, we have you know, 400 and 130 in the spleen and lung. So by and large, all of these overlaps are significant. And again, we can see that both the spleen and the lung contribute and teach us something. And then uh, we went again and done a formal enrichment of um, 
significant pathways. And we can see that both in the two tissues from the guinea pig and then the pathways you know, the, from the genes in the three human cell types, we see a lot of the same major players in uh, tuberculosis. You know? For example, immune system, uh, MAP kinase, tyrosine kinase, mTOR signaling, calcium metabolism, and even chromatin modifying enzymes, which suggests that you know, there might be further uh, changes in epigenetics that we should study. And uh, Andrew, I'll hand off this uh, back to you. Great. Um, so that brings me to some of my work. Um, and for context, a lot of my PhD research um, was based on developing and applying uh, meta-analysis methods um, for biological data to study tuberculosis further. And so to do that work, I would often go to the Gene Expression Omnibus, which is hosted by the NCBI and has a wealth of publicly available uh, biological data sets um, for many diseases, but of course, including uh, tuberculosis. Um, and one of the major things that influences um, tuberculosis research is that we have these critical TB subpopulations um, that tend to have many biological differences that can make it difficult to develop consistent diagnostics and therapeutics, et cetera. And two of the major concerns with these subpopulations are those who have um, HIV comorbidity and also that TB can present very differently in adults compared to kids. Um, and so for this work specifically, what I was trying to do was identify biological pathways that are similar across these populations, but also that differ across these populations to kind of get a bird's eye view of um, what um, so for this work, we picked three different gene expressionary data sets that were collected in whole blood. Um, one of them is in kids, um, one of them is in adults and does not include any HIV adult patients, and the last um, is in adults and includes HIV patients. Um, we used uh, Lima to do a differential gene expression analysis and identify our uh, significantly differentiated genes. And then we can rank those gene lists and run them through gene set enrichment analysis, which allows us to identify pathways which are either enriched or depleted in our population. And then I use a method called enrichment map, which is the next arrow, um, which allows us to lay these populations um, over top of each other to identify um, at the pathway level which pathways are um, consistently enriched or depleted across our different populations. Um, this is an example, uh, a little group of sub-pathways um, showing what that looks like. And so you can see here, each one of these nodes is a pie chart and each, each slice of pie corresponds to a different one of those data sets I was just talking about. Um, and enriched pathways are shown in red and depleted pathways, um, not that you can see any here, would be shown um, in blue. And so you can see here, um, we are just displaying what I sort of think of as some common uh, frequent flyer pathways um, for understanding TB um, infection and biology, including interferon gamma signaling, um, et cetera. But one of the clusters that really stood out to me, and you will see it, um, is we had this whole cluster of epigenetic regulation genes. Um, and this is the work I was presenting at that conference where Andrew and I met and got really excited to talk to each other wherein I was finding that uh, pathways in DNA methylation and oxidative stress-induced senescence um, and senescence-associated secretary phenotypes were consistently enriched across all three of these um, TB uh, data sets across these three distinct populations. Um, and so this sort of orthogonally validated a lot of the research he was already doing and approaching with Christian. Um, and so we wanted to sort of dive into that at the gene expression level further. 
Um, so one of the things we did was we designed um, just a summed uh, z-score um, for those three different pathways that were just highlighted. So DNA methylation, our SAS pathway, and our oxidative stress and senescence pathways. Um, and you can see here that we really have um, different enrichment of these pathways across either our TB population or an asymptomatic control population um, in all three of these data sets. And it's quite a distinct pattern that we're seeing there. Um, and not only that, if we look at the correlation between these pathway scores for these um, three different pathways, we see that there's really, really high and strong correlation um, of these pathways together, suggesting um, that they're somehow working together um, as part of a TB infection and influencing patients, um, which is something um, that continues to be true even if we take out some of the overlapping genes um, that are contained in all of these pathways. So we, we had the idea, as I mentioned earlier, that HIV and CMV are known to induce premature epigenetic aging. And when we saw these results, we wanted to look at the overlap between what we saw in humans. So these are the genes that were hypermethylated in humans with TB. And we compared that to a study of age-associated uh, closed chromatin marks that were previously published. Uh, and there was a statistical overlap between, between these, the DNA hypermethylation and the closed chromatin marks. And some of the common genes and some of the common pathways are right here. Uh, now, we had serum from humans with TV, and we looked to see if common senescence-associated proteins were increased. And, and we looked at approximately six or seven of these proteins and we found that three of them, TNF-alpha, CXCL9, and CXCL10, were increased uh, in individuals with TB compared to individuals without TB. Now, at that point, uh, we applied the Horvath clock, uh, a known DNA methylation clock, to the individuals with TB. And we had the individuals with TB um, when they were originally diagnosed with TB. But we also had a DNA methylation time point uh, for them 12 months from their initial diagnosis, which is six months after the completion of successful TB therapy. So all of these individuals met the WHO criteria for successful TB cure. Um, and you can see that for each case, their DNA methylation age was increased a median of 12.7 years. You can see here, there aren't a lot of individuals. It's, um, uh, I believe it's roughly 12 to 16 individuals uh, per, per group. Um, and we were lucky in that as we were working on this, there's a lot more data, publicly available data for RNA-seq. And so, so Carly found this uh, and there was this new RNA age clock. So similar to the epigenetic clock, individuals with TB had uh, an RNA age that was approximately 14 years greater than their chronologic age. And this was not significant only for people with TB here in red, but here there was a group of individuals who were asymptomatic and healthy, but in the um, uh, following year, 
they went on to develop TB. And you can see that these individuals uh, had an increased uh, cellular age as well. So previous studies have shown that individuals with uh, increased epigenetic clocks above their chronologic age were at increased risk of mortality, of all-cause mortality. One of the future questions we really want to ask, since we know that individuals who survive sepsis, pneumonia, TB, and COVID, even after propensity matching, uh, they're at approximately a threefold increased risk of all-cause mortality, with that increased risk being due to increased heart attacks, um, strokes, increased risk of cancer, and increased risk of respiratory infections. We'd like to know uh, what the relationship between the premature epigenetic aging and the morbidity and mortality. Uh, we're trying to study in vitro uh, if this is reversible, and we have some ideas on ways at which we're hoping um, to reverse some of these premature epigenetic aging. And we're not sure if this is specific to TB. I suspect it's not. Um, as I stated earlier, there's some evidence for CMV and HIV that they also in increase uh, cellular aging. Um, but we suspect it's true for schistosomiasis and bacterial pneumonia. There's just no data on those uh, right now. Great. Um, on that last point, I have a quick question about reversibility. Um, and my question is, certainly this is a great first step in uh, future directions is probably looking at that. Does it reverse on its own though? Like, do you have any indication of whether this after, I don't know, somebody recovers from TB uh, after a few years, your epigenetic ages or your RNA ages might go back? Do you have any thoughts, expectations, predictions about that? I have a couple guesses. No one's done that. Our study is the longest setting when he has gone, 12 months from initial diagnosis. Uh, so we need longer studies. I presented this data to our colleagues in Eswatini um, uh, 18 months ago, and they immediately said, all right, well, we need to extend follow-up from our current follow-up of 12 months uh, all the way to 36 months. So we're, we're working on that right now, and uh, we're trying to get more long-term studies. Uh, here in Houston, uh, we're enrolling individuals who had pneumonia in the past 36 months, so we can go back and, and look at that. In terms of your other question, in terms of what could reverse uh, premature epigenetic aging, I am excited that certain things um, like good nutrition might be beneficial. For There's a, a large spread. There was a study uh, from Steve Horvath's group that showed that total carotenoids were associated with an epigenetic age lower than your chronologic age, we have reason to believe that that would be beneficial, more beneficial, if you suffer from uh, a serious infection. As Carly showed, there is a, a strong correlation between oxidative stress and DNA methylation. Um, and we were looking at that specifically because of the previous work that came out of uh, Dr. Horvath's group 
uh, and we're trying to follow that up um, with in vitro studies, and I would love to follow that up uh, with human studies, how great would it be if we could do something as simple as, you know, listen to our grandma's uh, recommendation to, to eat a healthy diet. Uh, I hope there are some simple drugs that we could use as well uh, that might be able to do it. And all of that just needs to be studied pr uh, prospectively. Yep. So, Brian, along the same note, as part of you know what I enjoy about working in bioinformatics is that I get to participate in a lot of intellectual cross-pollination, okay? And this means both, okay, there's this method that was developed in this disease, but can really apply it everywhere. And also, well, occasionally, I try to learn and pay attention to what my biology collaborators do, okay? So in that sense, um, on that topic of cross-pollination, um, we're collaborating and we worked with some uh, folks at the uh, Burr College of Medicine, Shekara Jagopal, who are essentially using uh, agents like uh, glutathione supplementation, which uh, by, you know, essentially, and there's already a product, you know, packaging uh, glutathione precursors as dietary supplements, and that helps, um, you know, boost the levels of glutathione. And how this came to be, how this collaborator is actually working, and Andrew knows him well, is working on uh, aging as a side effect in HIV patients. So, you know, once treatment improve where they don't die, you know, early and they're able to live productive lives, but then the next phenotype to deal is, you know, premature aging. And some of those agents have been shown to work well in like elderly people, you know, bringing back some, you know, cognitive function and everything. So we're, yeah, we're trying to see if we can do projects, you know, and Andrew is, you know, very keen to see where this particular agent, like glutathione supplementation, can it then help with uh, people who, yes, survive TB, but might deal with long-term side effects, you know? So again, that's part of what appeals to me to work where I work because I get to bring things together, see different ideas, work from one field to another. So yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, well, talk about cross-pollination. I think I was on that Horvath paper with looking at carotenoids. Um, and then the, part of my question was because uh, we, We've looked at longitudinal stability of the different clocks epigenetically across decades of people. Um, and part of the exciting thing about your paper here is that I always think in most of the populations we look at, we're looking at like their average, you know, change in their lifestyle over long periods of time. And we might not have the specificity to capture small changes. But also, people don't change their habits all that much. And so why would you expect their epigenetic ages and the aging rates to change? The exciting thing about this paper is this is a strong perturbation to the system as in the form of tuberculosis. Uh, and that's why I'm curious about the persistence of it and uh, whether that lasts. And looking at other strong biological factors that seeing how that affects the epigenetic ages is really exciting. So Brian, something that we learned from our work in environmental exposures is that we have seen um, aging plasticity come into play in the context of early light BPA exposure. And this was reported in Nature Communication a few years ago. We are seeing it now in liver after like early life organotin exposure. And I think one of the themes that emerged is that aging plasticity is programmed in all of us, right? As such, you know, that's something that will change and is there. And then uh, exposures to environmental, you know, the factors, but like, you know, infections and others 
you know, there's a whole vulnerability right there. So if different um, interactions can like latch onto that and work with that, that's something that unfortunately, you know, is probably is pre-programmed as a vulnerability in all of us. I mean, normally it just helped us deal with like, you know, the challenge of like, you know, just chronological challenges, you know, but technically some of these uh, factors, you know, and tuberculosis is one of them can definitely hijack that and lead to some bad effects, you know. And again, it's uh, we're seeing it also outside a bit outside of the disease models that Andrew and Carly have reported here. You know, yeah. So, how do you guys see this um, playing out? Let's kind of assume that tuberculosis and other infectious diseases accelerates aging. Um, is there a way to prevent that? I guess one one possible scenario could be we find that if you treat it early enough or prevent it, uh, you save a lot of lives, a lot of person years. Um, what are some other scenarios and possible implications that our audience members should, you know, think as, as possibilities uh, in the future? We um, are very curious about the metabolic epigenetic communication. Uh, we're calling them, you know, three metabolic epigenetic rheostats, three mechanisms by, by which metabolism induce epigenetic changes. And at least in our preliminary in vitro experiments, we're excited to see uh, that if we delay and inhibit that communication, we can delay the, the scar formation. We need better models to test if it can actually reverse it as well. Uh, that's one place I'm hoping to see where we can actually manipulate and address uh, these scars. Um, if that doesn't work, there are direct epigenetic modifying drugs, which um, currently are still very much uh, global and, and not targeted the way that we want them to be. And, and certainly there's plenty of people working on developing more targeted uh, epigenetic mod modifiers. Um, but also at the public health level, this could have pretty significant prognostic implications. Uh, so for example, the global mortality for tuberculosis is 9%. So if you suffer from tuberculosis during therapy, you have a 9% mortality. There was a meta-analysis of over 40,000 individuals who had survived tuberculosis. And in that meta-analysis, 16% of them passed away in the following two years. That's a very large mortality. Uh, and again, that mortality was due to cardiovascular disease, cancer, and recurrent respiratory infections as the top three causes. Uh, we need to know if there are certain epigenetic marks that predict who's gonna have one of those three problems, because then we might be able to do something about it, but those studies haven't yet been done. So we need those long-term studies. And Brian, one of the other AIs we're hoping, you know, our research can help. So again, uh, in the cross-pollination, you know, I think I got my training in cancer bioinformatics and then, you know, say breast cancer subtypes was a huge, you know, revolutionary discovery and that, you know, from care. So in that, uh, you know, that informal paper, so um, Andrew and I led and uh, just got published a few months ago a manuscript paper in a uh, European Hospital Journal where we essentially identified tuberculosis endotypes, show that they have potential clinical implications, 
and they, they respond differently potentially to commonly used drugs. So on that note, um, I think, you know, perhaps, you know, one of the studies we can do and, you know, we can see if we can, can we identify, uh, you know, groups of people like endotypes in the tuberculosis infected that might respond differently to aging. So the same way that uh, we see that they respond potentially different to drugs, you know, they might have different aging trajectories. Or technically, we can go in a more direct, you know, with the right study, we can go in a more direct uh, search where we say, look, are there groups of people that under the same, you know, putatively bacterial load and everything still lead to different responses? I mean, yeah, because I think uh, the ideal case scenario is you see people that are pretty much immune to this aging disruption. And if we can find some people, that's who you want to study to understand what makes them, you know, special and learn from it, you know, but no, you know, that would be ideal in a potentially more plausible scenario. If we see that we have people that likely respond to aging, but are much more prone to acceleration, we want to identify them if we can early and perhaps intervene more forcefully or more aggressively. So again, you know, we're using this endotype uh, concept and we're hoping that it will have implications both in a patient, you know, specific treatment in TB, but also maybe teach us something about aging. You know, I mean, that's a more of a, at this moment, we're more at the basic research stage, but yeah, we're hoping that it can help address these challenges, you know, down the line. Pure speculations, but that's, that's, it's good to know kind of what directions we can move towards. So let me um, end with uh, giving you guys an opportunity to ask uh, for, you know, what kind of collaborators, what kind of data sets would you like? What are some things that you would like someone to solve for you so that you can move your research forward? And I'll, I'd like to hear from all three of you. So uh, maybe, uh, Andrew, you want to start? I would love to see large data sets um, for different types of infections. Uh, there's so few data sets um for common viral infections common bacterial infections what's what's the overlap uh in epigenetic changes between a helminth infection a mycobacterial infection a bacterial infection a viral infection we don't know that and uh better data sets that would be you know someone like carly could could tear that and answer that really quickly i'd love to see um i'd love to see that addressed carly christian yeah, I mean, I'd like to echo in, you know, any study making your data available to do additional validation analyses like these just has so much benefit to the community. But it's not just making your data available, it's also making the metadata available. Because I cannot tell you how many times I find a data set that looks like it could be really rich and it could help us answer a question, but I can't tell what processing steps have happened already. Um, I'm missing definitions for some of the variables. Uh, I'm missing little things like one of the struggles we had with this in identifying an RNA-seq data set to use was that they hadn't published the known ages of, of patients. And so we, we were only able to find the one data set that had done that. And we're so glad they did because it added so much richness to this. But making that kind of, um, not just the biology data, but but the clinical data and also information about how you cleaned the data available and putting it out there for people um, is really gonna move fields like this forward. And it gives so much extra power um, to scientists who are trying to work on these interdisciplinary questions and um, answer. Um, yeah, so, so 
brand. I mean, you made the point that there are, so some of my, you know, what you said earlier was speculation and regarding to HGTs, but regarding to endotoxin and clinical trial is not, you know, because so on the note, we are actually had to collaborate with a group from Germany who had uh, transcriptomics and follow-up clinical data. And we are able to demonstrate that our endotypes stratify by time to culture conversion, by cure rate, by death. So we are able to bring some of it and demonstrate a clinical, you know, relevance, associational relevance. But yeah, I'm with Carly that, you know, we have used many, many datasets on the literature. And then unfortunately, we're always limited to what's there, you know, and I try to make best. And technically, one of the lessons that I think Andrew took to heart and, you know, based on his activity, he's might be better able to implement in the, he's involved in planning and executing some large scale studies of tuberculosis. And the whole plan is to derive both, you know, eventually omics of different sorts, but also to compile and make available a rich clinical data. Because then, you know, we all focus ultimately, as you know, we discover something, you know, I care about endotypes and you will care about the immune system scaling, but other people might care about other things, right? I mean, ultimately, you know, we teach the reason we're all different and the reason we care about it, that's actually part of the reason that we do so much in science, you know? So to enable everybody to pursue their own hypothesis or interest, totally with Carly, you know, we need to have uh, more access to rich and informative metadata. You know, and uh, yeah. Infectious disease field is, as as Carly stated, we are far behind the oncology field. So more than a decade ago, the NIH really invested in the TCGA, the Cancer Genome Atlas, and there's not a single cancer that hasn't been improved based on that atlas. We have nothing like that for infectious diseases. You know, that atlas has clinical outcomes rich, rich epidemiology, rich clinical information linked to every omic that you would want to study. And there's nothing like that for infectious diseases. So I, whether it's breast cancer, prostate cancer, leukemia, glioblastoma, mining that data has identified new therapies. And uh, I'm confident that infectious diseases would similarly find the common differences uh, targeted therapy, precision medicine, in the same way that cancer um, has benefited from the TCGA. Um, and well, just to accelerate the conversation on that last point, so there are groups out there that can run epigenetics very easily, but then access to tissues is the challenge, or access to the metadata. Uh, does is that is that latter part solved? Yet? Are there people, or is there a consortium where there is a gathering of tissue and information? Not that I know of. No, not that I'm aware of either. All right. Well, that seems like a great first step, uh, <laughs> whoever succeeds Francis Collins. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, thank you all for your time. Um, you know, I know there were multiple time zones that we were just coordinating around, um, but really exciting. And thank you for sharing your thoughts and your paper. Congratulations on the publication and best of luck with all the rest of your research. <laughs>